0: Father, we lift up our hearts to You as You come and meet us in Your Word. We would ask now that You would attend to us through the power of Your Holy Spirit, that You would move in this place and into the lives of Your people, taking the infallible and inerrant Word of truth into our lives to be changed, that we might better glorify You and give witness to the grace of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Come now and meet us as we attend to your word, and as you, through that word, attend to us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Our reading from God's holy word this morning comes from the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain... And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he, that is Jesus, opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you. When others revile you and persecute you. And utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets. Who were before you. The grass withers. And the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Well, if you've joined us after the beginning of this service and maybe missed any opening remarks, you might be surprised to find that we're not in the book of Genesis. If you are a member of this local congregation, have been attending regularly, you know that we've been working our way systematically for about a decade through the book of Genesis. (laughs) No, it's not been quite that long, but it has been a bit of a lengthy series, and maybe for your own strength and endurance, we're taking a bit of a break from Genesis. Over the course of the summer, we're spending 10 weeks in this wonderful passage of Scripture, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. We actually finished the Jacob narrative in the book of Genesis. We'll pick up in the Joseph narrative in the fall, Lord willing, if he should tarry. And we're all here in the fall. Uh, We will make our way into the final section of the book of Genesis. And by God's grace be done with the book of Genesis by the end of 2019. And collectively we said amen and amen. But over the 10 weeks together, as we are in the book of Matthew, Matthew 5, 1 through 12, spending time in this word, exploring really what is life in the kingdom of God. What does it mean to be the blessed people of God? The reason for choosing this series at this point in juncture in time is is strategic with regards to our church calendar. Uh, We are today celebrating Ascension Sunday. Uh, ascension being the, the rising of the Lord Jesus Christ to the right hand of the Father, coming into what scholars refer to as His session or His authority, into His power, His kingship. And as he ascends to the heavenly places, he takes that rightful position on the throne at the right hand of the Father, ruling as King of kings and Lord of lords. And he promises, as he said to his disciples earlier, that when he ascends to the Father, it's actually better that he do so, for then he will send his spirit And His Spirit will be with His church. And we will experience the power of His indwellingness. And the advance of His church will go through the work of the Spirit, applying the merits of Jesus Christ as churches are dotted throughout the book of Acts all over um, Asia Minor. All over that section of the globe that we call the Middle East. That advance of the gospel has been given by the work of the Spirit the Spirit of God coming to extend the mission of Christ. We're in the midst of that season of the church calendar where we remember the work of of Christ and His power, and we remember the Spirit as we will next week in Pentecost and the advance of the mission of the church. And it's not uncommon in church history during this particular season to focus on practical applications of the Christian life, to consider what does it mean to be the church, What does it mean to be a Christian? What would it look like for, for you and I to be further shaped as a corporate body into the vision of the church as given by the New Testament? What would it look like for the image of Christ to be more greatly conformed to us individually that we might bear witness of His glory? I would suggest to you that maybe there's no better passage in the Scripture to look at for those purposes than the passage we're going to look at together over the next 10 weeks. Matthew chapter 5 verses 1 to 12, these well-known, very familiar words known as the Beatitudes. A A word that simply means blessing. We are looking at the people in whom Jesus says are the blessed people. People who are blessed in according to Jesus' terms, according to His definitions. We are looking at what the church, what a Christian is actually meant to be. Now in saying it that way, it is in some sense um, to be expected. Because the Beatitudes may be um, be the most familiar of all of Jesus' teaching, at least arguably so. But alongside that, we might also suggest it's probably the most misunderstood of Jesus' teaching, simultaneously. When we read through the Beatitudes and we think to ourselves, and someone says, oh, we're going to look at the Beatitudes, we go, oh, the Beatitudes. Oh, that wonderful section of Scripture. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who are persecuted on my behalf. For theirs is the kingdom of God. Oh, what a blessing it is to hear those words. Really. I, I Forgive me if I don't immediately see the blessing in the blessings of Matthew 5, 1 through 12. It's almost as if we're not listening to it. If we too easily just run to say, oh, what a blessing to study the Beatitudes. For the Beatitudes, if you're not careful, will actually transform your life. Because the Beatitudes are picturing for you a kingdom that is not of this world. A way of looking and viewing the world and experiencing the world that has nothing to do with the categories of the world. But everything to do with what is the upside down kingdom, which is to say the right side up kingdom of Jesus Christ. The one that he's come to establish And you, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ today, it's the kingdom that you're a part of. It's these words, these Beatitudes that are to be characteristic of a Christian's life. This is a picture of our lifestyle. This is a picture of our values. This is a picture of our behavior. When we look at the Beatitudes, we're looking at what it is we're meant to be. And to be quite honest, when we look at it, it's not immediately flattering. It's not what we would sign on the dotted line to sign up for eagerly. We need to have the eyes the vision of faith and an understanding of the kingdom to be able to want this picture of the Christian life to be true of our experience of it. Two errors that we often see in approaching, Matthew chapter 5, 1 through 12, errors that can send us far astray from the purposes of Jesus in this passage. In church history, some have argued that Jesus is really laying out, in Matthew 5, 1-12, the pathway for salvation. That if we consider the teachings of the blessedness of Christ in this passage, He is teaching us of what it would mean to enter the kingdom of God. The path that we should walk in order to enter the narrow gate, as it were, into that kingdom of which he is Lord. But if we were to look at this passage as if it's laying out the pathway of salvation, we'd be, well, we'd be forced to think that the Lord Jesus is drawing us into a salvation by works plan. You know, do your best at being poor in spirit. Merciful and pure and hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Do your best and at the end we'll see how you did. We'll grade you, we'll score you, we'll see if you pass. And if you pass, you're going to get into the kingdom. You can imagine how miserable such an existence would be. Waking up every day trying to be poor in spirit, trying to be pure, trying to hunger and thirst for righteousness when you're really hungering and thirsting for everything else. And how depressing it would be to end every day knowing that you miserably failed. And that the scorecard, if there should be one, would not have you as an A, B, or C, or even a D, but would have you as an F. We would die under the crushing weight of the guilt that, that would come with saying, hey, do these things, and then you'll enter the kingdom of heaven. No, as we look at the Beatitudes, we are not to be looking at them as a pathway into the kingdom. Instead, we should see the Beatitudes As the lifestyle of those who are already in the kingdom. To put it another way. The Beatitudes are not a way to be saved. The Beatitudes are a description of the person who is saved. They're a person who's already entered into the kingdom of God. They've already come to terms to the fact that they can't be the person that God has called them to be. They are commandment breakers. They have fallen short of the glory of God. They're in need of His grace. And they've cast their cares upon Him. Knowing that He cares for them. They've welcomed. they've now been welcomed into His kingdom. And with the new creation in Christ that they have become. They have new desires. New drives. New hopes. New dreams. New aspirations. What is it that they want to be? They want to live out the Beatitudes. Not in order to be saved. But because they are saved. As an expression of the transformation that the Lord has performed in their lives. Now, some of you may be in hearing that, thing to yourself, oh, that's assuring. <laughs> I'm glad to know I don't have to keep the Beatitudes to be saved. I'm glad to know they're a portrait of the Christian and the way that he's committed and his lifestyle in life. But if you actually stay in that for just a minute and read the Beatitudes, you won't be any more settled or at peace. I'd like to suggest that your life doesn't probably match up very well to the Beatitudes. Which means even if it's not a way into the kingdom, if it's a description of your life in the kingdom, I'd like to suggest that probably your life doesn't look exactly like the Beatitudes. Which poses a problem. A dilemma, you might say. It raises maybe these questions. Does that mean that I'm not a Christian? Is that, does that mean that I'm not saved? If this is a description of what it means to be saved... And I see that there are many aspects that are not often true of me in my living of the Christian life. Does that call into question whether or not I really truly know the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, I don't want to spend long here, but I do want to raise that reality as a part of the teaching of of this passage. That we should be a people who examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. If we read through the Beatitudes and you say there's nothing about this that is at any level characteristic of me or my motivations or drives or intentions or, or efforts, and I don't have the affection for Christ that I ought to have with regards to His commands as King and Lord over my life, then I ask you, examine yourself to see whether you've ever truly known Christ. And maybe over the course of this study together, as we come week in, week in and week out, you might find yourself that one of the good works that the Lord might be doing in some of our lives in the context of this teaching, is giving to us a healthy consideration of whether we have ever truly known the Lord Jesus Christ. But for many of us in this passage, we might be tempted to do what others have done. They've read the Beatitudes, they've seen it as a portrait of a description of the Christian life, but because there's a gap between its portrait and their life, they've drawn the conclusion that it really doesn't apply specifically maybe to them, but applies to the Christian elite, the, the, the gold standard Christians, the missionaries, the ministry vocational types, but really for the bronze standard Christian or maybe even edging into the silver standard Christian who really is just attending church and occasionally volunteering in the nursery and might attend a Bible study here or there. For them, the Beatitudes is is, is really not so much the focus. The focus of the Beatitudes is to take you to the next level. If you want to get to that elite level in the, in the Christian faith, then you'd really turn, well, to the Beatitudes. Some have taught this. This has been actually a regular pattern of teaching that we've seen throughout the medieval period, for instance, that this was a kind of a clergy rise or a monastic rise into if you really wanted to be a Christian who's a go-getter an overachiever, a type a -er who's going to really kind of knock the socks off of Christianity. If that's really who you are, then you need to turn to the Beatitudes. But for many of us, the bronze level is fine. There's nowhere in the Scripture that you're going to see any of that. For the Scripture never speaks of a gradation or degree with regards to commitment to Jesus. Yes, are there differences in... Calling, oh, most assuredly, not everybody has the same calling. Not everybody's occupying the same office or station in the Christian life. But everyone who's a Christian is to have the same commitment. The same commitment to Christ. And there's no, there's no halfway house There's no 25% or 75%. It's all or nothing when it comes to commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus says, take up your cross daily and follow me, he doesn't say that to some Christian elite. He says that to everyone who would be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. John Blanchard wrote it this way, Nowhere does Jesus suggest that these beatitudes are required only for leaders or preachers or those particularly zealous believers. The Beatitudes reflect the qualities of a normal Christian life. They're meant to be seen in the life of every Christian, without exception. Now, if that is true, Blanchard is correct, and that this is not a pathway into the kingdom, but a description of the person in the kingdom. But if it's not just for the Christian elite, but it's for all Christians, I really, I haven't helped us at all at this point, because we still have the gap we still have the dilemma, the gap between what the Beatitudes say a Christian looks like and what you and I know her feelings in trying to describe you, what you and I look like, which doesn't always resemble the Beatitudes. How do we understand the Beatitudes? It all comes down to one key word. A word that we're going to spend time in, that you'll find in the title of this message, you'll find in the title of this series. It's the word kingdom. It's the word kingdom. If we're going to understand the nature of the Beatitudes and how they relate to the Christian's life, your life, my life specifically, we're going to have to have an understanding of the kingdom. And for some of you, in hearing the word kingdom, you're like, I've grown up in the church. I've always heard the word kingdom. I I have some vague sense of what we mean when we talk about the kingdom. It's quite possible that part of the misunderstanding that we have with the Beatitudes, if we don't understand that they are reflective of a life in the kingdom of God, because we don't have a real grasp of what we mean when we say kingdom of God. We don't necessarily know what it is that we're talking about. But all over in Jesus' teaching, in fact, I think we could rightfully argue, the lead focus in Jesus' teaching, you know what it is? It's the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of God. You see it over and over in his communication. Notice, if you have your Bibles open in Matthew chapter 5, you might just look back a chapter to Matthew chapter 4. It's there where we see a description of Jesus' ministry. And I want you to see how Matthew describes the early days of Jesus' ministry. Matthew 4, 23. Listen to this verse. Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues. And then notice, preaching the good news of the kingdom. That's what he's preaching about. He's preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. He's he's teaching in the synagogues. We actually see this in Luke chapter 4, for instance. when, When Luke... tells us of Jesus as he goes into Nazareth, his own hometown, and he, he stands up in the temple and he reads from Isaiah 61 and he talks about the coming day of the Lord and the kingdom that is to come. And he reads this glorious picture of the poor having good news preached to them and the captives being freed and all of this beautiful language of redemption. And then Jesus says, today, in your presence, this has been fulfilled. And he sits down. It's the first words that we ever hear out of Jesus' mouth in his formal ministry. And what's it about? It's about the kingdom. The very first words in the Gospel of Mark with regards to Jesus' preaching, you know what they are? Repent. For what? The kingdom of God is at hand. It's the first preaching words in the book of Matthew as well. Matthew four seventeen. From that time on, Jesus began to preach saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This kingdom stuff is everywhere. Jesus is preoccupied with it. He's he's overcome with it. He's obsessed with talking about and preaching about and communicating about the the kingdom. So what is it? What, What is the kingdom? Simply stated, the kingdom is... The rule of God in the world. The rule of God in the world. When Jesus comes, he's bringing with him the kingdom, the rule of God into the world. The kingdom that is outside this world, the heavenly kingdom, is breaking in to the earthly realm. And Jesus has come to declare, to proclaim to inaugurate to establish the rule of God in the world. Now, why is he the one coming to do that? Well, because well, he's the king. Where the king is, there the kingdom is. Jesus has come to the earth, and as he comes to the earth, he tells us the kingdom is at hand. Why? Because he's at hand. He's present, the king himself is present, and he's come to establish the rule of God in the world. And he is bringing that rule, that authority, with him as he comes. This is why when Jesus preaches and teaches, he doesn't preach and teach like the teachers of the law. In Matthew chapter 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, there's commentary on Jesus' teaching. And what the crowds say about Jesus' teaching is this He speaks like one with authority, not like the teachers of the law. Now, why does He speak like one with authority? Because He has authority. He doesn't come borrowing someone else's words. He doesn't come taking, he comes with his own proclamation, his own declaration. He comes and literally can call the world to repentance by virtue of his presence. That's a strong word that's coming from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's he's saying, You can't remain the same and enter into my kingdom. It's going to require repentance. It's going to require a change. He came to preach the good news of that repentance. Notice as we enter into the Sermon on the Mount, the posture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. Here he is, almost like a a new Moses or a second Moses figure. He's come as one who's up on a mountain to declare the law of God resembling Moses in the Old Testament, who went upon the mountain to receive the commandments of the Lord. Here is Jesus coming on the mountain to speak the commandments of the Lord. He's declaring, as it were, the very commands of the Lord. But then, notice his posture. When he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now when we read that and we think, oh, this is a sweet little Bible study. That they're sharing. It's a great little circle in somebody's kind of proverbial living room where we're gonna share about what the passage means to us. No, that's not what's going on here. In Jesus' day, it was common for rabbis and teachers of the law and the Pharisees to wander around to teach or to stand to teach. But if ever you sat to teach, it was to declare with authority a statement of unequivocal truth. It was a picture of actually seated in authority. You know how we talk about a professor at the university having a chair? He's a chair of science, a chair of the humanities. And this person sits, as it were, as a master or an authority to speak on that matter. Very similarly, Jesus here sits to communicate what we're about to explore together. He's coming as a man of authority. Notice what else it says. His disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught him, taught them. Now you might read that and think to yourself, "Well, that's normally how it works. It's difficult to teach without opening your mouth." So thank you, Matthew, for letting us know that Jesus is not a ventriloquist, does not have a puppet, but he is going to open his mouth and he is going to teach. No, it's not. He's not just being rhetorically cute. By saying, open his mouth. What's he doing? Well, he's letting us know in the language of a prophet... That he is opening his mouth to give his own words. He's not coming in anyone else's words, under anyone else's authority. He's coming to open his mouth to declare these things for the first time. He is the king who's come to give this edict. He is the king bringing the kingdom of which this is what its charter and constitution looks like. He's giving us a portrait as a king. In the posture of a king, with the words of a king, teaching as someone who has authority, not like the teachers of the law. So as we come into the Beatitudes, this is what's really important. This is an exercise of Jesus' ascension or his kingship, his authority. It's an exercise of his power. And to enter into this teaching is to say, I want to submit to the teaching of King Jesus. I want to live within the sphere of his kingdom, the kingdom that he has come to bring. Now, why do I say that? Well, if you look at the Beatitudes themselves, you'll see that not only is, is they're speaking of the kingdom leading up to the Beatitudes, but notice they're speaking of the kingdom within the Beatitudes. Just to give a kind of 30,000 foot view for a second, look at the very first of the Beatitudes, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's the very first of the Beatitudes. It's, it's reward. The reward for the poor in spirit, the blessing of the reward in spirit, is theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They have the kingdom. Notice the last of the Beatitudes, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now interestingly, the Beatitudes are structured, eight of them in total, with the first one and the last one focused on what? The kingdom of heaven, the rule of God, the very thing that Jesus has been preaching leading up to the Sermon on the Mount. Well, in in beautiful Old Testament imagery, what's sometimes referred to as an inclusio, where the beginning and the end echo the same content, it's meant to teach us that everything in the middle has to do with the very things that are on the end. Just as we begin the Beatitudes focused on the kingdom of heaven, we end the Beatitudes focused on the kingdom of heaven, which means everything in the middle is about what? Life in the kingdom of heaven. All of the promises that are given to us about the blessed life have to do with living under the leadership or the rulership of Christ and entering into and living out of His kingdom. Notice this secondly. The first and the last of the Beatitudes are in what tense? They're in the present tense. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is... The kingdom of heaven, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those are the only two that are present in all of the Beatitudes. Telling us again that Jesus has done what? Brought the kingdom. It's in your midst. It's even as he will describe it later in the gospel. It's inside of you. The rule of God and the power of God and the kingdom of God is inside of you. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So this means that in the beginning and on the end, we're hemmed in by this picture of the kingdom. And the kingdom is present. But then notice something really curious. All of the other blessings are in the future. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who are meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who are merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. They're in the future. Interestingly, it says that they're presently blessed because of what they'll get in the future. Did you catch that? This may sound really odd. Blessed are those who mourn. Notice it doesn't say, blessed will be those of you who are mourning. For later you will be comforted. Doesn't say that. Blessed are those right now. If you're mourning, if you're in the midst of sorrow, if you're in the midst of heartache, if you're feeling and experiencing the effects of the fall, right now in your sorrow, you are Blessed. This passage says, why? Because in the future, you will be comforted. It it doesn't say your blessing is coming. No, your blessing is present. Because you know what's coming. Now, if you can experience that with me in this space and time right now, you know the difference between entering into suffering, for instance, with not being sure about the future. And you know what it's like entering into, into suffering knowing the positive future and its outcome. And what happens in that moment when you know the outcome of something, that future blessing, what happens? It breaks in now upon you. It breaks in upon your heart. Like for instance, when I realize there's an injustice that's taking place And I know that this injustice is not going to be righted in my own time and space and history. And I'll likely go to my grave not seeing that justice made right or my heart being broken. But what I can do in space and time and history is know that in the end, before Almighty God, all things will be made right. And He will bring all things to full justice. And He will wipe away every tear. And He will bring forth the full comfort of everyone who suffers in His name and for His sake. Do you know what's happening in that moment? I'm experiencing in my own soul that reality now. Do you know what that is? The kingdom coming. That's the kingdom breaking in upon you. The reality of Christ's rule and his reality is coming now. It's breaking in upon you. It's it's capturing more of your heart experientially. Do you see why in Matthew chapter 4 when it says Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God and then what did he do next? Healing every disease and affliction. Now don't read that and think, oh, he quit being interested in the kingdom. No. He was saying the kingdom when he preached it. And he was showing the kingdom when he healed He was bringing forth the power. What's he going to do? He's going to reverse all the effects of the fall. He's going to overcome all of the brokenness. He's going to overcome all of the sin. He is breaking in. The kingdom is breaking in. Now that's actually happening in the moment when you begin to hear the good news of the reality of the promises of the gospel and you realize that I am blessed even in the midst of my mourning because I know The truth of the promise of the comfort that is coming. I know in the midst of my persecution. I know in the midst of my poverty of spirit. I know in the midst of my experiencing mercy and my need for more mercy. I know there's more blessing that's coming. Do you know what it's showing us? It's showing us this dynamic that's always in the scriptures when it comes to this teaching of the kingdom. It's showing us that the kingdom is both here and coming. What this is what the scholars call the already and the not yet of the kingdom. The, the kingdom is already here. Jesus has brought it. But all the blessings of the kingdom have not yet been fully realized. Right now, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. Do we see everything in the world submitted to him? No. It's right now his kingdom is established. Is it consummated? No. It's growing. It's spreading. But it's not complete. It's not yet full. That's why there's still mourning. But we shall be comforted. There's a present reality, but there's also a future hope and reality. Listen, isn't that true for your salvation? I mean, think of it right now, you are sons and daughters of the Lord Jesus Christ if you are in Him. There is nothing about that status that will change when you enter into glory. You're not going to be more a son or more a daughter when you get into glory. You can't become more a son or more a daughter than you are right now. But you know what? You can become more of a son meaning you can look more like the son that you have been saved to be. You're going to grow into it. But not... In a different quality, but in a deeper and richer and fuller measure. That's what's happening with the kingdom. And when Jesus speaks of the Beatitudes, he's saying, You are blessed because you shall be comforted. You are blessed because you will inherit the earth. This blessed life is something that is already here and is not yet fully here. Now here's why that's comforting. Maybe some of you thought I'd forgotten about our dilemma Our dilemma the fact that when we just look at the Beatitudes, and the Beatitudes describe the Christian life, and they don't necessarily describe your Christian life very well, or my Christian life, and we see a gap between the two. The the reason we see a gap is because the picture of the Beatitudes is a picture of the kingdom that is both here and coming. It's already here and not yet fully here. Meaning we experience some of it, but we've not yet experienced all of it. We experience some of poverty of spirit. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have experienced a measure of poverty of spirit because poverty of spirit knows that you live by utter neediness of God. Utter neediness for his grace. There was nothing you could do And there is nothing you could ever do to earn his favor or be in a right standing with him. You are poor in spirit. If you are a believer in Christ, you've experienced poverty in spirit. But I can guarantee you this next week, you're going to forget poverty of spirit. And you're going to act like you got it all figured out. And you know what that's a picture of? The fact that the kingdom has come and it's still got a ways to go inside of you. Because you keep snapping back into the kingdom of the world. You keep fighting the flesh. And when we enter into the Beatitudes, you know what we're asking the Lord to do? We're asking the Lord to take on more of our hearts. Take over more of me. Capture more of me. Let your lordship, let your kingship be over me. So with that in mind... I want you to realize that as you look at the Beatitudes, there are several different ways, I think spiritually, you can be challenged to look at them. And I want to give you a few of those as we close today and as we reflect upon Christ. The first is this. When you come to the Beatitudes, the first thing that you should realize, and one of the purposes of the Beatitudes, is to humble you. It's to humble you. If you read the Beatitudes and you go, i got a long way to go. That's good. You need to own that before the Lord. There's not a time where I don't read through the Beatitudes and I think to myself, I've got a long way to go. I've got a long way to go. This is not, this is not fully an example of who I am yet. That humility leads me to confession, which leads me to truthfulness and honesty and the reception of grace, which will actually conform me more into the pattern of the Beatitudes. Because they start with what? Poverty. Isn't it fascinating that the God of heaven and earth says the beginning of blessedness is not riches of a king but the poverty of a pauper because it's only in our poor that we know that we can be rich in Christ. You see how rich that is? That's the gift of the poverty of Spirit. It starts with humility. Let me challenge you as we go through the Beatitudes and even reflect on the Beatitudes this week. I want, to, I want you to do this. I want you to look at the Beatitudes and be specific about areas of weakness. And bring those before the Lord. Bring those before the Lord. That's part of the discipline of the Beatitudes. It's part of what God's calling us to. The second thing the Lord is calling us to in the Beatitudes is assurance. It's assurance. He's calling us to humility, but he's also calling us to assurance. Because as soon as I think to myself, I've got a long way to go, I can read back through the Beatitudes and reflect on my former self from 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago, as the case may be. And you know what I can also say with joy? Not just that I've got a long way to go. I can also say, I've come a long way. Praise be to God. There's changes. Like there's there's differences from the the Nate of 10 years ago and of 15 and 20 years ago. The Nate of 10 and 15 and 20 years ago was worried about and preoccupied with certain things that are different now, and I see victory in areas, and I see I see new areas that need work on, and that is the evidence of God work in my life. I'm assured, I'm encouraged. I'm blessed that though I've got a long way to go, I've come a long way by God's grace. That's a blessing. There needs to be a discipline as we approach the Beatitudes not to move towards hopelessness for how far it is we have to go, but also to look back and be encouraged about how far the Lord has brought us. Give us encouragement and assurance in the faith. Now, for some of you in this room, you're going to need help. You're going to need to talk to someone who knows you well, who can give you encouragement because you can't see any encouragement when you look at your life. I know who you are. I have a similar disease. We need to help each other and to say, brother, sister in Christ, I see the Lord at work at you in this way. Be encouraged. The Beatitudes will humble us. The Beatitudes will assure us. Thirdly, the Beatitudes will give us hope. Not only will we say, I've got a long way to go. I've come a long way. But we can say, this is who I want to be. Gives us hope to become the person that the Beatitudes is setting forth. This is who I want to be. That sense of hope to say, I know that the Lord God has purchased me with his blood. He has charged the righteousness of Jesus to me. That which he has begun in me, he will bring to completion. It's not a matter of if I will grow into the Beatitudes, but when. Praise be to God in hope, I'm going to put my hand to the plow and go after it. That's a spirit that comes out of the Beatitudes. A spirit of hope a spirit of commitment, a spirit of confidence that the Lord can and will do this. And it will address your cynicism. Your cynicism about not being able to grow. Or that so-and-so certainly will never grow. Or that situation, well, it'll never change. That hopelessness, you know what that is? Kingdom of the flesh, kingdom of the world. The, The kingdom of God says he is Lord over all and there is nothing that he can't change. With just the word of his power. He sits in the heavens and he does whatever it is he pleases. He holds king's hearts like rivers in his hands. He turns them however it is he wishes. On an Ascension Sunday, we should have hope in the recognition of the power of God that he can bring this change in our life. And finally, it should bring us thanksgiving. Thanksgiving because when we look at this passage, brothers and sisters, we shouldn't just be concerned about us. We should be concerned about us, but we shouldn't be just concerned about us. In fact, we should be primarily focused on Jesus. Because do you know who this passage is really about? It's really about Him. Who is the one real blessed man? Who's the one real poor in spirit who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross? Who's the one who is known as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief? The one who mourned, who now is comforted at the right hand of the Father. Who is the one who is quiet and gentle, who doesn't snuff out a smoldering wick or, or break a bruised reed? Who is it that really hungers and thirsts for righteousness? It's not you and me. It was Jesus, who His meat and His drink was to do the will of the Father. Who is it that's really merciful? It's Christ. The one who is constantly covering our sins with his blood and extending to us the mercy and the grace that we do not deserve. Who is it that's real pure in heart? You. There was no guile found in his mouth. There was not the least shred and taint of sin or iniquity anywhere in his character. Only Jesus is pure in heart. Who's the peacemaker? He is the peacemaker. He's the only one who reconciles heaven and earth. He's the only one who can bring a peace that surpasses all comprehension because He's the only one who's won that peace for us by satisfying the wrath of God on the cross and being victorious over the grave. Who is the one that was blessed in the midst of persecution for righteousness' sake? Was it not the one who is your crucified Lord? The one who... The one person who never deserved persecution is the one person who received the worst persecution. For what purpose? Because he was righteous, not because he was a sinner. Is this is why Jesus says, Blessed are those who are like this. Why? Because that's him. It's all about him. The whole thing is about him. Do you see why this is thanksgiving? Should be at the very center of the Beatitudes. This is not ultimately just about your growth. It's not ultimately about us becoming something. It's about us seeing that he is the something that we need. He is the fullness of all of what the Beatitudes teach. The reason we can be utterly confident that we will become these people in Christ is because this is who he is. And we get all of who he is through the cross and the resurrection. And now his power and ascension. We get it. It's ours. The beauty of the Beatitudes is not merely grow into this. The Beatitudes is you will be this in Christ. Now grow into it. Do you see the joy of thanksgiving that that brings? Do you see the light and easy yoke this is? If we are to walk out tomorrow morning and try to be poor in spirit, we're going to fall flat on our face. But when we see the one who was poor in spirit for us, and we see the glory that the Lord has given to him and the spirit of that humility that now has been placed within us and we see the beauty of the gospel of what's been accomplished, you know what begins to happen? We become so self-forgetful that poverty of spirit becomes the reflex of the soul because now we are consumed with Jesus, the true poor in spirit. It's the way all of these beatitudes work as we move into these one by one and reflect on them together and pray and ask the Lord to do this work within us, I want you to know, brothers and sisters in Christ, nothing will change unless the Lord changes, unless He builds this house. And so I ask two things of you as we enter this series. One is, I want you to memorize the Beatitudes. You've got 10 weeks to do so. It's not as hard as you think you got 10 weeks to do so. If you take about a verse a week, verse and a half a week, you got it. What would it be like to have several hundred people memorizing together the Beatitudes, stirring it in our hearts, reading and reflecting on it, asking the Lord to do a mighty work? Might he be pleased to begin to make a bit of a city on a hill right here in the corner of Church and Third? In downtown Franklin. That would be beautiful. Memorize the Beatitudes. The second thing is. Pray the Beatitudes for the life of the church. Pray the Beatitudes for the life of the church. Before you get to work on this. Get on your knees. Get on your knees. Because apart from the work of the Lord. We can't see the change and the transformation we need. So memorize. And pray. Through these Beatitudes together. And I think you'll see. That the Lord loves to reward with that kind of devotion. He loves to reward the delight and the growth that comes from getting close to Him in the means of grace together as a body of Christ. And let's trust Him to surprise us along the way with His grace. Father in heaven, come and meet us in this series. As we seek to be and to become the blessed in Christ, this description being more true of us over the course of our life together as the body of Christ, come and humble us. Come and assure us. Come and give us hope and confidence. Come and fill us full of thanksgiving. Help us in the study of these Beatitudes to begin to have the kingdom that is coming breaking in more upon our hearts so that more of us has been conquered by Jesus. That the testimony of our time in this series over the course of the summer would be that we have changed in the 10 weeks we've been in the Beatitudes together. That there's more family resemblance between the church at Cornerstone and their elder brother, Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ, by the end of the summer. And that the watching world, even Middle Tennessee, even Franklin, as they interact with your church, they might see the good works and they might glorify God who is in heaven. For they see the real blessing of the upside-down, right-side-up kingdom that Jesus Christ has established. And Lord Jesus, as we pray for this reality to be more realized and true in our own time, we also pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We, we long for the day when the kingdom is not just already and not yet, but that the kingdom is fully here in its consummated form. And the Beatitudes become the blissful reality of the life of faith. Father, more of this we would ask humbly in your presence now. Move into the hearts of your people in a special way over the course of this summer. So that your name might be praised. And we might rejoice with great joy at the work of God in our midst. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.